Galatians chapter, verse by, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We are in Galatians chapter 2. Verse 11, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. You are going to need a Bible uh, today. We are going to be jumping from place to place. We have one right here, Solomon. Anyone else need a Bible? Anyone else? Raise your hand if you need a Bible, Spanish or English. Okay. Let's go through. The hardly, there can hardly be a more critical set of verses in the Bible. I know the whole Bible is, is so rich and so important, and we need to eat up every bit of it, but oh, do things get, do things get intense and heavy and wonderful in these verses. Chapter 2, verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing by the Holy Spirit. He said, now when Peter, he's speaking about the Apostle Peter. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, before them all. If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now go down to verse 19. Verse 19 says, For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Meaning that Christ's death was meaningless. Let's pray. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name. And Lord, these words here, unfamiliar to some, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. What does that mean, Lord? Would you speak to our hearts today? Would you open up our hearts? Would we be able to see you, Lord, in this message, this word? Father, I pray that I would not be a hindrance to you speaking directly to the hearts today, Lord, to do surgery on them, to split them open and pour in your word, Lord, that I would not be a hindrance to, to um, anyone who came in here, a man or woman who is currently in a life shaking their fist against you, if not with their words, their actions, a person who needs to repent. Lord, may I not be a hindrance to them 
having a direct encounter to you. And Lord, in their heart, if not physically, they're just falling on their face and saying, God, I, 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 I'm done. I'm done living for myself. I want to live this verse. I want to be the one saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Lord, do that, do that work, that wonderful, powerful work in my life and the life of everyone here today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Grace, could you bring my water right there? So each of you, each of you in this room, every one of you, was created to love God. God is love and he created you to love him. There is no greater pleasure in all of life than loving God. All the money in the world, all the power, all the sex, all the adventure, all the entertainment, anything and everything the world has to offer, it's nothing compared to the pleasure of loving God. David, King David in the Bible, he wrote the Psalms, had all those things and more. He had the money, he had all the money that, that you could want. The power, the sex, the adventure, the entertainment, he had it all. And he declared, nevertheless, in Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy. In Psalm 84, verse 2, he said to God, my soul longs, yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. And then in verse 10, he says, better is one day in your court, God, than a thousand elsewhere. Now, if you've never experienced something like that, where that joy is just gushing forth, and the reality and the pre being in the presence of God and in the fullness of His joy, if that has never happened to you, Could it be there's something in between you and God that's preventing that from happening? Because that is a promise to every believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Just don't let anyone try to convince you otherwise. That's a promise that in his presence there's fullness of joy. Could it be that there's something in between you and God preventing you from that from taking place? Something that, by the way, God himself wants out of the way because God is love. He created you to love him. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus says, he created you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is there something between you and God which is preventing you from loving God. If so, the Bible has a diagnosis of you. Go into a doctor's office, they run blood work or whatever, they, they have a diagnosis of what may be the problem with you. The Bible has a diagnosis for you. If you have something in between you and God that is preventing you from loving God, the Bible has a description. The Bible says you have not been set free. You're not free, the Bible says. John chapter 8, verse 36 says this. This is Jesus, by the way, um, speaking in John 8, 36. Jesus says in John 8, 36, if the Son of Man makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In the same book in Galatians, chapter 5, verse 1, the Holy Spirit 
writes this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. In the Bible, liberty and freedom is defined. It's defined as when there's nothing, and I mean nothing, absolutely nothing, in between you and God that is hindering you from loving God. When you get up in the morning, trust me, the thing you want more than anything else in the world is to go to some private place where it's just you and God, and there's nothing in between you and God. That's where you want to be, I assure you. The problem is, is that we are ever and always doing this very thing, just bringing in stuff in between us and God. We are experts at it. It's our fallen nature. It started in Genesis chapter 3 when we decided that we, that something, uh, we, we knew about something that was better than God. And ever since that time, we just put things, we allow things to remain, to get stuck in between us and the Lord. We learned last week of one very famous example of a man who did that very thing. He, uh, someone who put something, actually many things, between himself and God. It's so important, I'm going to begin again and talk again about him. His name was Martin Luther. Before we get into our study of the verses that we read today, I want us to talk a little bit about him again. It's just so incredibly important what happened to this man. He lived 500 years ago. He had many things, um, and, and there, he, had, he had allowed, or many things had put, been put in between himself and God, uh, along with tens of thousands of other men and women around Europe, Western Europe, he, he became a Roman Catholic monk. His guilt drove him to that. Him and tens of thousands of others. And, and, uh, and men and women. So women became nuns, men became monks, Martin Luther became a monk. And in order to become a Roman Catholic monk, he made at least three vows. We went over these last week. Number one, a vow of poverty, meaning he gave up all his possessions. Number two, a vow of chastity, meaning no sex, no marriage. And number three, obedience to the rules of the monastery that he uh, gave his life over to. And the rules of the monastery were very strict. The monks lived in very small cells. They were highly restricted in what clothes they wore. They went to bed very early and got up very early, actually between 1 and 2 a.m. And, uh, and at about 2 a.m., they all gathered together, all the monks, they prayed for 45 minutes, and this they did seven times each day. It was very restrict religious life. The monks had what was called an absolution. Now what that is, it's sort of a, it's a promise of God's forgiveness, a promise to them. The problem is it wasn't a promise. It was a promise with many conditions. But I want to put it up here. Unfortunately, it was so long, I can't put up uh, the whole thing. But I'm going to put it up before. This is what they would tell a monk who, or a nun who was in the uh, monastery or the convent. They would say to them, May the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ so this, this was an absolution. It, an absolution was um, a promise of forgiveness, of how to be forgiven by God. Is everyone with me? So they would read this to them. This is, uh, this is a statement of how you can be forgiven by God, monk or nun. And so they would actually say this to um, a monk. One of the leaders would say it to them. May the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ and 
the strictness of your religion, meaning seven times a day praying among many other things, and the humility of your profession, meaning uh, the way that you lived. Are you doing it in a way that is humble? And the contrition of your heart, meaning deep down in your heart, do you really elevate yourself above other people? Or are you humble? Are you contrite? Are you sorry for your sins? And the good works that you have done and shall do for the love of our Lord Jesus Christ, may they be available to you for the forgiveness of your sins, the increase of your worth and grace, and the reward of everlasting life. Now that's a mouthful. I've tried to put it in a chart for you because this is really important stuff. Okay, oh, we kind of have it here, thank you. So in this chart, it says, may the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ and the strictness of your religion the humility of your profession, the contrition of your heart, the good works you have done and shall do for the love of our Lord Jesus Christ be available to you for the forgiveness of your sins, the increase of your worth and grace, and the reward of everlasting life. That's what they were told. Now, this was for a monk. This was for someone who took a vow of not owning anything, no sex or marriage, and have to be obedient to the rules of the master. I mean, if you weren't a monk, I don't know what the hope of forgiveness was for you. This was for the people who really got serious about their religion. But I want to I look at this for a second. Can we get that back up? The, the chart, the, lo the longer one. This is a little, the font is a little small here. There's a huge problem with this when it comes to what the Bible teaches. And the problem boils down to one word in this. Now, I've kind of given you a little hint as to what that word is. But what is the one word that creates just enormous problems? And. and. May the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ, if they had stopped there and said, be available for your forgiveness, it would have aligned exactly with the Bible. But that's not what we do. We, we, we love man-made religion. We like to try to be in control. And, and, and so they added uh, the, the strictness of your religion, meaning how strictly you are being religious throughout the day, the humility of your profession, the contrition of the good works that you have done and will do. And, and so what happened was uh, what next, what happened next, really, uh, was that uh, Martin Luther, he was, uh, he, he would, as we said last week, he would, he would pray more than everyone else, he would fast more than everyone else, and, and, and he got to the point where, can we, can we just, uh, Heather and Victoria, can we keep the, the chart up there? He would be doing these things, and it would always be, but have I done enough? 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 Is um, the number, uh, the, the second one there, after the sufferings of Jesus, have I been strict enough with my religion? Have I been humble enough? Have I been contrite enough? Have I done enough good work? So what had happened with him and God? What was, what was the problem between him and God? There was something between him and God preventing any joy. The joy which the Bible says that God pursues your joy and is more interested in your joy than you are because when you are joyful in God, God is glorified. 
The world goes, what? What's the story about the joy in this person when they're going through that? God is, it's his God. He has a great God. But there was something in between him and God, and it was all this stuff. There was something between him and the Lord. When the Bible teaches, it teaches that forgiveness is given you, given to you, by the suffering and death of Jesus Christ, plus nothing. Plus nothing. Uh, one of to, Paul wrote a letter to one of the churches in this region of uh, Galatia. It's in the book of Colossians, it says. Uh, can we have the verse from Colossians? Uh, he wrote this. He said, You, being dead in your trespasses, he is made alive. Let that sink in. God is not in the business of making good people better or bad people less bad. He's in the business of making you who are dead alive. You, being dead in your trespasses, he has made alive, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the requirements that were against us, which were contrary to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So again, Colossians 2.14, the very end of this, I just want to put it right by itself because it's very important. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And so, again, Luther had all this stuff between him and the Lord. And it, it, it little did he know that it had all been taken away. 1 John 1, 7, another verse, um, just says it simply like this. It says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There's no amount of works. There's no amount of avoiding doing bad things. There's no life that anyone can live that can possibly earn a relationship with God or uh, earn God's good favor. It's only the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's get back to the verses that we began with this morning. So Martin Luther, he's a monk for 20 years. And during the latter years of being a monk, he, we went over this last week, he was given the job to be a teacher of the Bible, and he was given the assignment of teaching this book, the book of Galatians. And he was teaching the young monks the book of Galatians. Again, he was a monk for 20 years, and this is, he'd been around for probably a monk for about 15 years. And he's reading this book, and he comes to verse 16. Go down to verse 16 of, of chapter 2, which says this, knowing that a man is not justified, and, and, and for purposes of the lesson this morning, put the word forgiven in there. Being justified, is, it's a larger concept. It's actually a, a more glorious concept than being forgiven. But, it, it, but, but for purposes of, of our study this morning, just substitute forgiven. He says, knowing that a man is not forgiven by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be forgiven or justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And then finally, for the third time in the same verse, it says, for by the works of the law, no flesh, meaning no man or woman, will be justified or will be forgiven. So he is reading this and one day, or it may have been night, he's thinking, wait, if this says this, and it says it so forcefully, it's like a three times in one verse and over the whole book, over and over again, probably 30 times, what in the world are we doing in this monastery? What in the world are we doing? What are we doing 
adding to what Jesus Christ did for us. And, and, and we have made ourselves slaves, slaves to the law. We have uh, been, been called to freedom, this book of Galatians says. And, and we've made ourselves slaves to the requirements of this monastery. And we're being told that to be forgiven is going to depend on how I follow the strictness of this monastery life. And so he went to the Pope to protest. He was the first Protestant, which is long for protest. He was the first to protest. He challenged the Pope and the whole Roman Catholic Church on the religious system that the Roman Catholic Church had put in between people and God. And in so many words, he said to the Pope, we have been called to freedom, but this religious system is enslaving us. The Pope refused to listen. And so after a number of years, he left. He left the monastery, along with tens of thousands um, of others left the Roman Catholic Church. So this book, it can hardly be a more important book in the Bible. The book of Galatians. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who had himself led a life very similar to Luther, he says in other places in his letters, I was stricter than anybody as to legalistic righteousness. I surpassed everyone. But he got knocked off a donkey by Jesus himself. And Jesus said, no, it's none of that. And Jesus himself, this is post-resurrected, post-ascended to the heaven, Jesus taught the Apostle Paul the gospel which we now read. Let me tell you, Paul, what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John mean, and, so, and, and as well as the whole Old Testament, um, which testifies of me. And Jesus uh, uh, taught um, Paul. So Paul takes that. He goes into the region of Galatia which is modern-day Turkey. And the message that he gave was this. You have disobeyed God's law, all of it, and God who is holy must punish you for that, and the punishment is death and hell. But God so loved you that he sent his son Jesus Christ who obeyed God's law, all of it, and then Jesus was punished in your place by being crucified on a cross. And then he rose from the dead after three days. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ and ask him into your life, all your sins are forgiven and you're free to be with God and love him and enjoy him forever. Starting now. Amen. And it says, we read this in Acts 13, great multitudes flocked to this message and became Christians, Christ followers, with all kinds of miracles and signs taking place. And churches were established throughout that region of people who had been freed from their sin, freed from man-made religion that had, that had been between them and God. So over the course of a few years, Paul oversaw these churches. He went back to visit them. It says um, uh, that he strengthened them when he went back to visit them in Acts 14. Um, and and uh, th there was this wonderful, wonderful revival that had been uh, taken place. But eventually, so here's what happened. The same thing that happened with the Roman Catholic Church. Same thing. Over the course of time, men came in and they began to introduce man-made rules into those same churches in Galatia. So, uh, Heather, can we have that chart again? So again, these same rules. You've got to be strict in your religion. You've got to be humble in your profession. You've got to be contrite in your... And you need to have good works. You need, you, you need... It's not just the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. Yes, that was important. It's all these other things. That's what happened in these churches in Galatia after Paul had departed. 
And so when the people in, when these people would come in with this false teaching, they would protest and say, wait a second, this is not what we were taught by the Apostle Paul. And the people responded, they were false apostles, they responded, Paul. Yeah, we heard about Paul. Paul. He's so small. He's a false apostle. And so they tried to attack the messenger, Paul. And, 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 and so uh, some of the people in Galatia, they were won over by these false teachers. And so what happened to the joy? Gone. What happened to the freedom? Gone. What happened to the life that was in the church? It, it began to die. And so what happens, Paul writes them this letter. Galatians, Galatians chapters 1 and 2, which we're in now. And he, he defends himself um, in, in chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians. He's trying to prove to the Galatians that he really is an apostle. And he speaks very, very forcefully about it. We saw in two verses, verse 8 and 9 of chapter 1. He says, listen, anyone who teaches you anything other than uh, uh, what I taught you, even if it's an angel showing up, let them be eternally damned. I mean, he is so forceful. He even gets more forceful in chapter 3, which we'll, we'll be in eventually. So we were in the first half of chapter 2 last week. I want to begin today in verse 11. In verse 11 through the end of the chapter, chapter 2, Paul talks about an incident that happened between him and the apostle Peter. Him and the apostle Peter got into it, you could say. And, and, and part of the reason he's telling the church in Galatia, okay, you don't think I'm an apostle? Let me tell you what happened with me and Apostle Peter. Everyone knew about the Apostle Peter. And so in verse 11, he said, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Wow. I mean, the courage that would take to do to a man who walked with Jesus for three years. It says he went and to his face he confronted him. Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, Peter, would eat with the Gentiles, meaning the non-Jews. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel, why do you force Gentiles to live as Jews? So let me first say this. This is an extremely rare example of conflict between apostles. <laughs> extremely rare. After Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, there appears to have been a glorious unity among the apostles. And unity and love amongst Christians is given the highest conceivable priority in the, in the Bible. Throughout the New Testament, Christians loving one another and in spite of differences, forgiving and loving one another. It's just given the, in, uh, an incredible amount of importance in Scripture, including in this letter, Galatians. Jesus himself, in John chapter 17, right before he died, he, in John chapter 17, Jesus, God the Son, is praying to God the Father. And three times in that prayer, this is right before he was crucified. 
There's a lot of different things he could have been praying for. He prayed that you and I would get along with each other. Three times. And he says the reason. In John 17, 23, he says the reason is, is when the world sees you guys loving each other, they will know that the Father sent me. Somehow, when someone walks into this church or into a gathering of Christians and they can smell the love, <laughs> they know the Father sent the Son. And they are converted to Jesus Christ. Unity, such an important thing. But, but um, uh, so what is recorded here in Galatians 2, is, it's just incredibly rare. Now we'll talk about this next week. Peter repents and he expresses in a, a letter later on, he tells everyone how much he loves Paul. We'll talk about that next week, but it's a very rare. Paul says in verse 11, it said, this is intense. I withstood the apostle Peter to his face because he was to be blamed. And, and so the Bible uh, does teach, by the way, that when a sin is done by a leader in public, that leader needs to be corrected in public. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. It's just a principle. It's taught in the Bible. And so that's what the apostle Paul does here. He confronts Peter and he says, to his face, so why, what did Peter do that got him into so much trouble with the Apostle Paul? Well, the answer is in verses 12 and 13. Let's read it. He says, for before certain men came from James. Now, James, this is the Apostle James, and James was in Jerusalem at the time. And it says that before they came to us, he would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. So what happened was there were certain Jews who had become Christians that lived in Jerusalem and, um, and, and they had come out to see this church with all the joy and all the life. Who doesn't want to see that? And so they heard about this, these churches and they came out to be with them. Um, and, but it says that when they got there, they ate away from all the non-Jews, and they ate by themselves. And the reason was this. Jews had very strict requirements around eating. You can read about them in the book of Leviticus. It's the, in the Bible. The third book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. There's all kinds of uh, uh, re re eating requirements for, for Jews. No pork, no shellfish. Oh, man. No fish without scales, which means no, no catfish. And, and the, any meat had to be drained of all the blood and had to be prepared in a certain way. But listen, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of these requirements applied anymore to any Christian. There's a whole chapter about that, Acts chapter 10. And Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it meaning he obeyed it in, it in all their fullness, and then when he died, they were gone. So when Jesus died, the Jewish dietary laws died. They no longer applied, but the problem is, listen, when you've been following a religious law for a long, long time, it's really hard to stop it. It's really hard. That's how we humans be. And so what happened was that these Jews, um, they set up their own table away from the other people, away from the Gentiles, and, and, and it appears that they did it in such a way to make it loud and clear as, here's what the, the muscle-bound Christians do. The real spiritual ones. This is, this is what they do. And, and they ate with a badge of superiority to them. I'm more spiritual than you. Look at me. 
and they look down upon the others. Verse 12 says that Peter, the apostle Peter, he feared them. He feared them. They came and he feared them. What is he fearing? Why does he fear them? Because legalistic people are scary. They're scary. <laughs> because they're often mean, unloving, and very critical. Look at Peter over there. Can you believe what he's doing? He's eating with those... Look at that. I mean, come on. I, I, he feared being looked down upon by them. And I tell you, when I read this, I so relate to Peter. Legalistic Christians scare me. I'm fearful of them. I'm just being honest with you. Because they're usually, again, they're critical people. I, I mean, I'm addicted to being liked. It's not a good thing. Pray for me. I, I don't like it when people don't like me. And so we've had people in our church, for example, in the past. I don't know that there's anyone now. They believed that during a worship set, you sing only hymns. And if you sing anything that's not a hymn, you're wrong. I fear those kind of people. I remember thinking to myself years ago when, when we had, uh, years ago, I was thinking to myself, oh, this person may be coming to church. I was actually thinking about calling Dan and saying, hey, Dan, can you put a couple more hymns in the, in the worship set this week? Honestly, I'm just, a, I'm just being honest with you. I don't like being criticized. And worse than that, I like when people think I'm spiritual. It's terrible. And these people, in order for me to, 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 to think I'm spiritual, well, I could have hymns. Now, hymns are wonderful. I love hymns. But there's nothing in the Bible that says that you, you're only allowed to, to play music that's at least 100 years old. That's what religion does to us. And so, uh, hymns. This is one of a thousand examples I could give you, but it's real serious stuff because here's the deal. As soon as you lodge one law like that into your religious life, even if it's one, a goofy one, like you know, hymns only, something happens between you and God. In that private time between you and God, something happens. Something dies. You know Why? Because it's no longer just about Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus Christ and hymns. <laughs> or Jesus Christ and clothes. And Jesus Christ and uh, do not touch, do not taste, do not listen to. Something dies. And the joy begins to diminish. And so that, that's why this is so incredibly serious. <laughs> That one apostle, this giant man of God, is confronting another giant man of God in front of everyone. Let's read it one more time. Again, um, he says in verse 11, Paul says, When Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, meaning the Jews. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Let me tell you, religious legalism, it is, there's, it's got a spirit to it. It will draw away even good people. Verse 14 says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward, about the truth. They were, when I saw they were corrupting and causing these precious new believers in Christ to be a threat to these precious new be, uh, believers in Christ, a threat to their joy, a threat to their freedom. He says, when I saw that, I said to Peter, middle of verse 14, before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews why do you compel? Why do you force Gentiles to live as a Jew? So why does he say this to Peter? Some of this language gets a little difficult in these verses. Why do you say, if you being a Jew live in the manner of a Gentile? What is, what is Paul, why is Paul saying that? Verse 14 again. Peter, if you're, a, if you're being a Jew, but you live like a Gentile, why is he saying that? It's because 
Peter had started to, he, he had left all the eating requirements, those laws. He had left them behind. And he was now living as a non-Jew when it came to eating. Now quickly, I told you you'd be using your Bibles. Go back to Acts chapter 11. Go back to Acts chapter 11. Now Acts chapter 11, right at the beginning of Acts 11, in Acts chapter 10, God told Peter to go inside a Gentile's house and eat with them. These people, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, they were not believers in Jesus Christ. They had been praying to God, show us the truth, show us the truth, show us the truth. The Bible says if there's a, a tribe in the middle of the Amazon or something and they start praying to God, show us the truth, God will send them a missionary. And the evidence of that is Acts chapter 10. So these guys, they don't believe, they don't even know who Jesus Christ is. They're praying, God, show us the truth. And so God says to Peter, you need to go over there and you need to eat with them. And he says in Acts chapter 10, he says, no way, I'm not going to eat with them. I'm a Jew. I can't eat pork. I can't eat things that haven't been washed correctly. I can't eat meat that hasn't been drained of its uh, blood. And, and God said what in Acts chapter 10? Anyone want to shout it out? What did he say? Do not call unclean what I have made clean. And Peter didn't, he, 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 he didn't give up. He kept on arguing and God said again. Don't call unclean what I've made clean. Jesus Christ, my son, he fulfilled all those laws. So what did Peter do? He went to the Gentiles. He went into their house, ate with them. He shared the gospel with them. And one of the most glorious scenes, it says, while he was still speaking, what happened? The Holy Spirit fell down upon the people. They, meaning they just believed in their heart. The Holy Spirit fell down on these non-Jews and he shocked and so he gets back to Jerusalem, and, and in the beginning of chapter 11 in Jerusalem, uh, uh, it says in verse 2, when Peter came to the Jerusalem, those of the circumcision, meaning the Jews, contended with him, meaning they confronted him, and they said, you went, verse 3, you went into uncircumcised men, and you ate with them. He was confronted when he got back to Jerusalem. But go down to verse 18. Peter explained to them what happened. And in verse 18, it says, When they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. Meaning he's, he's saving them without having to follow all the Jewish laws. Now go to Acts 15. Acts chapter 15 the beginning of Acts chapter 15, there's a great controversy between Paul at the time and Barnabas, who believed Jesus Christ, plus nothing. And others who believed that, no, you had to require circumcision and other things in order to sort of add to the cross. There was a big, big controversy. What happens this is what happened. In verse 7, read with me here. It says, when there had been much dispute, much arguing, much contention, Peter, same Peter we read about in Galatians chapter 2, arose and said to them, men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, speaking of chapter 10, God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you test God? I mean, why do you defile the cross of Jesus Christ? Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Listen, we've never been able to follow the law. And you want the Gentiles too to be saved? Don't do that. And then the glorious verse, verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. 
meaning Jesus Christ, his life, his suffering, and his death, plus nothing, is what saves you. Your faith in what he has done. Now listen, Calvary Chapel, let me wrap it up by saying this. It goes way beyond laws about eating. It goes way beyond singing hymns or how you dress in church and, and things like that. It goes way beyond that. It, any law, even laws that still apply to you, do not lust, do not get angry, do not lie. If you're in your private time with God and you remember, listen to me carefully, you remember the day before when you lusted 10 times, the day before when you got angry three times, the day before when you lied, and there's no joy because there's guilt. Listen, Calvary Chapel, there's something in between you and God. It's the law. Something's wrong. You're trusting in the law for your joy and your communion with God. Look down at the verse we read at the outset, verse 19 of Galatians 2. Go back to Galatians 2. Go down to verse 19. Here's a shocking verse for you. Verse 19 of Galatians 2 says, I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. What he's, saying is, what he's saying is this. The law is after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, I died to the law. Meaning, so important, in a very, very real way, if you have given your life and trusted in the life, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ, the law, in, in a very real way, it doesn't apply to you anymore. In a very real way, it does not apply to you. Not that you don't try to follow it. How can you love God if you don't try to follow the law? But it doesn't apply to you in the sense that is no longer against you. It's no longer against you. Remember, remember we, we uh, read that verse in the book of Colossians. It says, Jesus wiped away the law that was against us. And he nailed it to the cross. He wiped that away. Victoria, can we get the verse from Colossians up there again? He, he, he wiped it away. So, so in a, and so you can say, verse 19, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, you say, I through the law, I died to it. It no longer um, applies to me. It says, and, and he has taken it out of the way. He's speaking about the law there having nailed it to the cross. Having nailed it to the cross. It, so it means, listen, it means this. When you have trusted in Jesus Christ, that you have been brought into a relationship with God, not based upon how good you are, but, be, but because of how good Jesus was and that he died for your sins. The moment you did that, you died to the law, meaning in a very real, real way it no longer applies to you. Not that you don't try to follow it, um, but, but it's no longer against you. It no longer cries out, Steve is guilty, Steve is guilty, Steve is guilty. It doesn't do that anymore. When you are alone with the, with the Lord trying to pray to him, the law is not crying out, she's guilty, he's guilty, she's guilty. It doesn't do that anymore. All that it takes is you, you, you get with yourself in the Lord and you remember the day before, the lust, the anger, the lie, and you simply tell God, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord. And you name that lust, you name that lie, and you name that, uh, that, that stealing or whatever, getting angry, and you simply tell God, forgive me. And, and the Bible says you're free. You are free. It says in 1 John 1, 9, it says, 1, 9, it says, the blood of, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up at this point. Worship team, can you come up? And we're going to have communion. If you can take that little communion cup that is right underneath 
your seat. And you take off the top, there's two layers there, and there's a wafer in there, and there's this, if you could stand at this point, at this time, if you could stand and just hold this in your hand. Can you do me a favor? Can you stand at this time? The worship team is going to close with a worship song. We're going to have communion just prior to it. And actually, if you've been asked to pray, if you could come up at this time. If you've been asked to pray, can you please come up at this time? Could you do me a favor and lift up this cup above your head? Just lift it up like I am now. Just lift it up for me. Would you do that? I'm doing this because this cup that you're, you're raising above your head and that grape juice that's in there, it represents the blood of Jesus that has purchased your freedom, has purchased your liberty. And Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, stand fast in that liberty with which Jesus has set you free. He set you free. Stand fast. Okay, you can bring it, bring it down now. Listen, we're going to have communion now. We have a few folks up here to pray. The worship team is going to uh, just to start a, uh, a worship song now. And any time during the worship time, you can take, a, take the wafer, represents the body. The Bible says it represents the body of Jesus that was broken for you. And then you can take the cup. It says that uh, it represents Jesus' blood. So anytime, you can, you, can, um, you can take it. But in the meantime, if there's something in, you feel like is in between you and God that is hindering your joy, if... if if when I read Psalm 16, which I did at the very outset of the sermon where David is telling God, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. If there's something, if, if you don't, if, 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 that, if that seems foreign to you, there's something between you and God. I don't know what it is. But let's pray about it. Let's pray about it during this closing worship song. If you have never in your life trusted in the life, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ for your salvation, come up. It's a prayer of faith. It's a simple prayer of faith that I can lead you in. You can come up. And we can pray through that. But let's worship now. Let's remember the body of Jesus was broken for us. When he, was, when he got to the cross, it says it was unrecognizable. The wounds that were there, wounds that you did, I did with our sins. It says that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If you'd like prayer, come up. Father, I just pray that you would lead us in this time of worship. In Jesus' name. say 